Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. 2 Corinthians 12, reading from verse 1 to 10. I must go on boasting, although there is nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself, except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool, because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain, so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. To keep me from becoming conceited, Because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Father, we come and we praise you and we thank you that you, the Almighty God, speaks to us. Help us to hear you, Lord, this morning. Change our lives, shape us, encourage us, challenge us by your wonderful will. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I don't need to tell you, but I will. We live in a world filled with weakness, with weak people in a world that hates weakness. We've got lots of things to try and fix us up, don't we? Cosmetic surgery, laser eye surgery, I could do with, with some of that. Gym membership, I could perhaps do with some of that. Hair tr- transplants, yes, okay, okay, I won't go on. We don't have to look very far to see how weak we are. And we live in a world that is desperate to rectify and eradicate our shortcomings. In July of this year, the Nuffield Council on Bioethics said that changing the DNA of a human embryo could be morally permissible if it was in the future child's interest and did not add to the kinds of inequalities that already divide a society. Asked whether genetic editing could be used to make children tall with blonde hair and blue eyes, if it was found to increase their chance of success later in life, Well, the chair of the research working party commented, well, we're not ruling that out. 
Now that sounds like a very big vision to try and eradicate human weakness. And you'll all be part of friendship groups, office cultures, your kids will be in school classes where many pity the weak, perhaps even scorn and treat them with contempt. The stronger and the smarter and the fitter and the richer we are, well, the more successful our lives are meant to be. The world's ambition is to escape weakness, flee it in order to prosper. And our passage this morning, it says something quite shockingly, really, quite shockingly different. We have here in verse 9, we've just read it. This is Jesus saying, my power is made perfect in weakness. The apostle Paul says he will boast and delight in his weakness. So what's going on here? Well, we continue in our series in 2 Corinthians, where last week we left the Apostle Paul, let down a wall in a basket. He was fleeing arrest. Now, if the Corinthians are looking for a hero to follow, well, it's clearly not him. But that does not mean they shouldn't listen to Paul. Because although Paul makes it very clear, he is no superstar. He's not worth the fanfare or the awe. Well, he wants to point them to the one who is, who is worth their worship, who is worthy. Paul has been very clear. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one who demands their worship. And just as a fish swims or a soprano sings or a surgeon operates or an artist paints, well, the Christian, the Christian worships and serves, and loves, and wonders in the eternal Jesus, in the eternal Jesus who is worth everything to them. Now, the Corinthians, the Corinthians were at high risk of forgetting this. They had started to settle for less, much less. They'd started to settle for plastic, fake jewels that the false apostles were presenting to them, and they were rejecting the diamond the blazing diamond Paul had held before them, Christ. Why? Well, they were duped by the presentation. The other stuff came in a fancy box, and they were impressed. These so-called super apostles were coming on stage to loud cheering fanfare, music blasting, crowds hooked on their charisma, their personality, and the Corinthian church, while they were falling hook, line, and sinker, for this fraud. You see, these deceptive leaders had wormed their way into and convinced the believers that they were superior to Paul. In rhetoric, they were more elegant. Their ability to command fees was to be revered. They believed they were higher skilled leaders with great knowledge And then in chapter 12, it looks as if they've laid claim to this spiritual superiority through their experience of visions. In verse 1 of chapter 12, Paul says, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. Now, that may well be that he's going through a list of claims made by his opponents to captivate the Corinthian church. 
You can't be serious about listening to this Paul fellow, can you? He is unimpressive. He can't speak. We find that in chapter 10. 10. He can't speak. He's so out of demand, desperate for an audience. He can't even charge for his services. Got that in chapter 11, verse 7. And what about his spiritual authority? What visions does God give him to excite you, to enthuse you? Why isn't he talking about them? And the truth of it is, Paul receives plenty of visions, actually. We hear of quite a few in Acts. So Acts chapter 9, chapter 16, chapter 18, chapter 22, 23, 27. All visions given by God to Paul. But he so rarely shares the content of these in his epistles. Because as he states here in chapter 12, well, such talk will only serve to puff him up and raise his reputation. And well, that's got no spiritual profit for the church he loves. And as Paul sees this church, which he planted and he loves, move further and further away from Christ that brought them together in the first place. Well, he feels forced here into talking about stuff he just did not want to get into. Verse 11, we have it just the next verse on in our passage. I have made a fool of myself, but you drove me to it. And again, chapter 12, verse 1. I must go on boasting, although there is nothing to be gained. And so we have here in verses 2 to 5 information regarding Paul's experience 14 years ago. Although we're not given a lot of information So Paul refers to himself here, in case you're wondering, in the third person, reflecting probably his hesitancy to boast about it. Verse verse 2, we've got this man in Christ. He doesn't know whether he's in body or out, verse 2 and 3, and he heard things too great for him to express, verse 4. And even if he was able to express them, we find in verse 4, he wasn't allowed to talk about it. So actually, we don't have that much of the vision, but we do know this vision was something marvelous. 14 years ago, we find Paul was caught up in the third heaven, paradise, we're told in verse four. Now, the third heaven, this is the highest place where God dwells. So it makes a distinction between the sky heavens where the birds fly and the the outer space heavens where the sun and the moon and the stars are, this third heaven, this unseen, this unseen realm where God himself dwells. Paradise we have here, an Eden-like place, gardens, wonder, peace, security, splendid opulence, where you experience the direct presence and pleasure of a wonderful loving God. And indeed here, Paul heard things too great for us to hear. Verse 7, they're described as surpassingly great revelations. Verse 4, they're inexpressible things. You see, when Paul came out of his vision, well, he had no common language to explain what was going on. He was in the throne room of God. The happenings That would have been going on there. And he had no language to explain it to these Corinthians. It's a bit like 
putting your smartphone in your pocket and jumping back a couple of hundred years in your time machine. Okay, so you try and explain how this little device, you pull it out, you see someone, some 19th century chap, and you see someone, you try and explain what this device is in your hands, but you just don't have the language. You're grasping around for words that would help you explain what it is. So you say phone signal, LCD screen, internet, email, apps, battery, electricity, even nothing. Now, it's not that your 19th century body lacks intelligence. No, the issue is the limitations of their experience. You see, they would be so far from understanding what a smartphone is because they haven't experienced anything like it, even anything close to it. There's no reference point. And a very similar thing is going on here. You see, this privileged experience Paul has of God is too great for us. You see, in a world where knowledge means so much information about virtually anything, a screen tap away, where we start to convince ourselves so easily that we can work God out. We start to bring him down a little to our level, raise us up. We can understand who God is, how he works, how he thinks. And we even try and put ourselves in his shoes a little. We even might try to start talking for him a little. God couldn't reject us being true to ourselves. He couldn't do this. Surely a loving God would dot, 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 and we start to speak for God. And the mismatch between God and human, well, it's huge. It's unfathomably great. And it takes the fittest and the most determined of our species to do wonderful things and we don't get close. So if you imagine, imagine, I don't know, maybe one of you, some of you have done it. I, um, let's imagine carrying out um, a great feat such as uh, pre- preparation to climb Everest. Has anyone, oh, okay. has anyone climbed Everest? No, good, okay, we're in good company. Right, just So months to pre- preparation to climb, you can only do it when conditions are right to do so. Only some then make it, even when they've trained and the conditions are right, Now, what did God do with Everest? He made it in a moment just by speaking, opening his mouth, speaking, and Everest existed. You see, we must not confuse our abilities or our capabilities or our experiences, as great as you think they may be, we mustn't confuse them with God's high ways. Isaiah 55, 8 to 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You see, he is higher. He is higher than the highest possible thing you could ever imagine. He is greater than it. Paul heard inexpressible things and they were too great for him to tell. And even if he could tell, well, verse four tells us he isn't permitted. An experience only for Paul. Perhaps, I mean, Paul was going through some unique, deep suffering for the gospel. And it was perhaps to sustain and bolster him amid severe suffering and trials 
And it certainly wasn't just to satisfy the curiosity of young Christians. And so we're actually told very little. You can hear Paul's embarrassment in bringing it up at all. Verse 6, he, brings, he fears bringing undue attention upon himself. You see, Paul is all about Christ. All about Christ, the crucified Christ, the risen Christ. He is the only one that can bring you hope. And Paul knows that. And the church, well, the church should only ever focus on the gospel message, not the messengers. And it is within this context of humility, Paul is given something deeply painful to keep him grounded. And we have here in verses 7 to 10 this infamous thorn. So what do we know about the thorn? Well, what is it? Its nature has been disputed. Possibilities have ranged variously among them. We've got inner psychological struggles, so grief, guilt, depression, continued temptations, perhaps persecution from his opponents, or perhaps physical affliction of some sort, so poor eyesight or malaria, severe migraines, a speech impediment. Now, some of these are more likely than others. We know that he wasn't born with it. It was something he was given after the vision. But we don't know what it is. We're not told. And actually, it's really useful and helpful as we read this that we don't know because indeed we can identify our weaknesses more clearly as we read this passage. But we do know it is something quite substantial. We know some of what Paul has suffered from chapter 11. We looked at this last week. He's had frequent imprisonment, severe flogging. He was brought near to death many times, beaten with rods. He was stoned, shipwrecked. He has known many dangers. He was lost at sea, hungry, thirsty, sleep deprivation, surrounded by people who hated him, who wanted him dead. Paul knows hardship. So to plead three times, for it to be taken, well, we can assume it was no light thing. We have it in the description here, don't we, in verse 7. It is a torment to him. Now, what was its purpose? Well, we can see again from verse 7, Paul has been given surpassingly great revelations and is to keep him from becoming conceited. See, with privileged entry into the throne room of God, into paradise, well, one's ego could become very inflated very quickly with the false idea of being superior to others who haven't had such visions, haven't been as blessed. And a thorn, therefore, is God's answer to keep Paul both humble and completely and utterly reliant on his Lord. Which naturally leads us to our third question. Where did it come from? Now, this is an important question. I would love to spend more time on it. I will say a little, but do please come and speak to me afterwards if you, if you want to flesh this out a little bit more. It is important. We are told again in verse 7, it is a messenger of Satan. See, Satan's work is harm and destruction. We are told he is the enemy of God and God's truth. That's 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 and 10. Jesus describes him as the father of lies. 
in John 8, 44. And well, he is capable of inflicting physical suffering upon us. We've got that in Job 2, in Luke 13, 11, in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5. But you see, given the purposes for Paul's spiritual good, well, Satan, Satan wouldn't do it for his good. Satan can only be the instrument by which the thorn comes. The phrase in verse 7 here, there was given me, well, that's generally understood to be what is known as the divine passive. See, God is the unidentified agent here. He gives the thorn. He meant the thorn for Paul's good, despite Satan's differing motives. God used him, God used Satan to serve his good will. So that's what's happening here in 2 Corinthians 12. Satan is at work. His purpose only harm, but he can only work within God's designs. And God's designs are for Paul's good. And we can see by Paul's response that he clearly here isn't a masochist. He doesn't just enjoy suffering for the sake of it. You see, pain is not intrinsically good in itself. I mean, we've got in Revelation 21, verse 4, God will take away the pain. It's a result of the fall of a rebellion and rejection against God that we have pain. Look at Paul's response. He pleads with the Lord to take it away in verse 8. And I know for some of you, you will have pleaded yourselves and wrestled with God to remove deep pains. Paul did it three times. He doesn't want it. It's not good in itself. He doesn't want the thorn. But what's made clear to him here is that God has a purpose for it. And this is where we find this wonderful, this glorious truth. God tells Paul, I won't remove it because, verse 9, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. My power is made perfect in your weakness. See, in contrast to these false apostles, they were banging on about how brilliant they are. Well, this is the source of Paul's joy. Verse 9 and 10, when he is weak, it serves but to demonstrate the greatness and magnificence of Christ. You see, these loud mouths, they tell everyone about their cleverness. Well, Paul tells everyone about Christ, his cleverness. They say they are strong. Paul says, no, Christ is strong. When you're struggling, they tell you that you've, they've written books on self-help with lots of self-help tools that'll help pull you through. Paul says, come to Christ. He is your comfort. He is your joy. They say, when you're going through illness or bereavement, come to them. They're the experts. Paul says, they'll only disappoint you. Come to Christ because he is the one who really knows you. It's how God has always worked in us. He is strong. We are weak. We praise him. We trust him. 
and we will see no better. No, no better. Weakness is how we show God is God, and we are not. We need him, and he is very, very capable of looking after us. And it's not just for Paul here, right the way through the Bible, right the way through, God time after time, urging us to rely on his faithfulness, not in our own strength. It will only fail us in the end. We keep delighting in him. Isaiah 57 verse 15, for this is what the high and lofty one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and lofty place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit. Genesis 18, 27, we've got Abram, the father of the faith, the great Abraham. Well, he acknowledges he is but dust and ashes. Exodus 3, verse 11, we've got Moses, the keeper of the law. And he asks God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Judges 6, we've got Gideon, the mighty judge. He asks, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest. I am the least in my family. 1 Samuel 18, the great King David says, I am only a poor man and little known. Paul himself, he's told this to the Corinthians. Chapter 1 of, of 1 Corinthians, verse 27, 29. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. You see, God is God. God is God. And they are not. Christ is Lord. And we turn only to him. He is the high, he is the lofty one who works his greatness through our loneliness, through the lowly and the contrite. And Paul, he knows it's only a fool who would suggest anything different. And so he seeks to protect his beloved Corinthians, who are, frankly, at severe risk of elevating themselves and completely diminishing who God is. And they must not do it. We must not. We must not spend our lives kidding ourselves that we can rid ourselves of weakness and be strong in ourselves. It will do us no good. Will medical advancements really make us stronger? Well, we might get a few more years, not many, but perhaps a few. But there's plenty of evidence to show it doesn't work. According to Charity Mind, Approximately one in four people in the UK experience a mental health problem every year. So some of us may have a little bit more hair on our crowns, on our heads, because of medical advances. But we will not rid ourselves of weakness. For to be human, well, it's to have a fundamental need to rely on your maker. We must not pretend to be strong or independent, or self-sufficient, for it is only a lie. And it takes us away from praising God, what we were designed to do, to praise our maker, to enjoy him, to delight in him, to praise a glorious Christ who deserves it. And the solution to our weakness, it's right here in these marvelous words, my grace is sufficient for you. 
for my power is made perfect in weakness. And this means, it should mean so much, everything. It means that we do not have to pretend. You don't have to come here and pretend that you're someone you're not. We can acknowledge our weaknesses. And like Paul, we can come to a place where we can even boast about them so that Christ's power will rest on us. And I know that's hard. I know some of our weaknesses here are excruciatingly painful. But Paul has it here, something excruciatingly painful. But he comes to a place where he boasts in it so that Christ's power will work on him. Paul could have focused on his many strengths. He had many. We hear of them on occasion, the things he did. He could have used and spoken of those to compensate for his thorn, but he doesn't do that. You see, he, just, he doesn't just want to do the best he can in a bad situation. No, Christ has given him the thorn. It just hasn't happened by accident and then they make the best of a bad situation. No, Christ has given him the thorn. And Paul is able to, in verse 9 and verse 10, boast, boast gladly, boast gladly, and he delights. You see, we see Christ's greatness more when he works in our weakness. As we close, Second Corinthians, it challenges us to think very, very differently from the world around us. We aren't to waste our weakness. Don't waste your weaknesses. Give attention to identifying them and pray Christ work in you because of them. Know his power in sustaining you. Know his power as he gives you greater delight and joy in him, in his strength that you would not have known otherwise. God has not given your weakness in vain. So be encouraged this morning. Identify them, accept them, and will allow Christ's power to light you up as he works in you. Let's pray together. That is why, Paul says, that is why for Christ's sake I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Father God, Lord Jesus Christ, we pray through your Holy Spirit. We would know and use our weaknesses to acknowledge your wonder and love and strength in our lives. We pray we would each and every one of us know your grace is sufficient for us, whatever our weakness. Plant this deep in our heart and give us a joy and delight even in pain as we see and know and wonder and rejoice in the amazing Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, I pray, today, each and every one of us, in Jesus' name. Amen.